This is episode 147 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, What's Up with the Economy? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really thrilled to welcome a new guest to the show today. Ryan Ratcliffe is with us. And he's an associate professor of economics. So we're going to be talking about the economy today. Uh, He's at the University of San Diego, and I'll introduce him. He has a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in economics, and an AB from Stanford University in international relations and economics. He specializes in forecasting, macroeconomics, and financial economics. His research interests include the formation and updating of macroeconomic expectations, linkages between financial markets and the macroeconomy, which we're going to be talking about today, state and regional economic forecasting, and the macroeconomic impact of housing cycles. Prior to coming to USD, He spent three years at the renowned UCLA Anderson Forecast, where he was the primary author of the quarterly forecast for California, as well as numerous other reports on local economic forecasts and regional housing markets. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start with unemployment. The labor report came out last week, I think, for May. And it showed a drop in unemployment and the addition of new jobs for the first time since February. And can you tell us how you interpret that data and if you can give us a historical context of that unemployment rate, that would also be helpful. Uh, Sure. Well, I think to understand uh, that most recent number, I also want to talk about the the one ahead of it, which is uh, basically the, uh, the March to April number and then the April to May number. Okay. Both of those are completely unprecedented in the uh, in the historical record we've got to work with. Uh, most of my thinking about forecasting is a little bit of when we've seen things like this in the past, what have they looked like, and how does that inform what we might expect to see going forward? And mm-hmm. we really have absolutely no historical uh, reference point for what we've seen over the last two months. I see. Um, the March to April number, which was kind of the first where we first started to see the pandemic in the economic numbers uh, was the biggest single month of job loss that we've ever seen. Um, To give it a little bit of context, uh, depending on exactly which measure you look at, it's uh, around 19 to 20 million uh, jobs lost in one month. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was about the same number of jobs that were lost in the entirety of the Great Recession over a two-year period. So, like I say, in one month, we've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. Then we saw another unprecedented number in the other direction where the uh, April to May number was the biggest single month of job gains that we'd ever seen in one month. Um, so, I think a lot of this is just that this is not your typical recession, right? This is something <laughs> right. that is uh, the economy responding to, to something that's kind of largely outside the economy. And so, I think. You know, there's a lot of discussion about what kind of what kind of path out of this are we going to see? You know, is it going to be a really rapid kind of V-shaped recovery where this is sort of a we press pause on the economy for two months and then it push unpause and we're back to where we were? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some people who uh, advocate that uh, point of view use the, uh, the most recent month of numbers to, to, to argue in favor of that. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we saw was very, very specific to, uh, to one sector, uh, leisure and hospitality, which that includes kind of tourist attraction kinds of stuff, as well as uh, hotels, restaurants, and bars. Now, obviously, those are all uh, businesses that are going to really be bearing the brunt of uh, stay-at-home orders, social distancing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, my take on it is that <clears throat> what we saw in that sector was an initial just sort of panic of the, we obviously can't do things uh, the way we've been doing them. And those, 
you know, a lot of those sectors, the restaurants in particular, uh, operate on very razor thin margins. So even the slightest uh, hiccup in the business puts you in danger of going under. But I think there was some snapback of the, okay, we can actually find a way to do this, but we're going to work through Grubhub. We're going to work through Uber Eats. We're going to do delivery, right? So that in some sense, a lot of the rehiring, I think is just the, well, it's not, uh, it's not the same way we did the restaurant business in the past, but there is an ability to still do, uh, to still make food for other people, even though we have to go uh, drop it off on their doorstep. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, Tell us about where the unemployment rate stands now and what the historical context for that is, if you can. You know, one of the interesting things is that economic data kind of comes out at a uh, pretty slow pace, you know, and and, in a lot of times we're looking a month. When you look down at the county level, even it's often closer to two months behind. Mm. And most of the time that's fine except in a situation with a really rapid, uh, fast-moving situation like this, where we want to have a more current kind of read on the economy. So um, one of the things that I've been kind of keeping my eye on is that a lot of people were looking at uh, more up-to-date numbers than the official numbers. Oh. So things like the preliminary read on how many people filed for unemployment insurance, you know, initial claims, Uh, Also things like how many people are Googling things like how do I file for unemployment insurance? Because we can get that kind of information on a much more timely basis. And all of those things, some of the numbers here in San Diego, for instance, uh, we saw unemployment claims and initial indications of job loss that were pointing uh, to unemployment more like uh, 20% or even higher. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the other thing I should say is that I will feel a lot better about the unemployment number a month or two from now. BLS is saying that they are having a very, very hard time actually classifying people correctly in this environment. Right. So, you know, I said I'm kind of in uncharted territory that I have no historic precedent. Um, The Bureau of Labor Statistics that actually calculates that unemployment rate has been saying that, you know, a number of times somebody will say that they are... uh, you know, taking taking time off for health reasons when really they've been laid off. It's just they've been laid off because of the pandemic or they will be laid off later. So there's lots and lots and lots of misclassification in the current numbers specific to unemployment. Mm. So it's hard to say because I think the the actual like job loss that we see, the 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 20 million at the national level I was referring to before, uh, the unemployment claims all point to a number that's closer to 20%, whereas the official numbers uh, that we're seeing are more in the in the zone of fifteen percent. So I think, like I said, this is all a little bit murky still. Mm-hmm. Historical context again, you know, the um, I, I hate to say the benchmark we're looking at now is the Great Depression rather than the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, the financial crisis we kind of saw unemployment uh, up around ten percent, um, which is you know about twice as bad as your typical unemployment spike during a during a garden variety recession. Uh, you know, obviously we've blown past that and, uh, you know, the worst unemployment we've got in the historical record, again, that only goes back, you know, maybe a hundred years or so is, uh, is the depression when we hit 25%. But that was again, something that unfolded over the span of a couple of years. And this is something that, uh, is kind of a one month thing. So a lot of this is, I don't really know what direction this is going to go in terms of the snapback. Um, you know, I, I think my my best guess at this point is is that a lot of these uh, job losses, we are going to see a fairly quick rebound. But I think there's a lot of sectors where it's just going to be difficult to transition to a kind of socially distanced uh, mode of operation mm-hmm. and that are going to take longer to kind of find that new normal. Then the other thing that I'm uh, that I've got my eye on is we've seen some pretty scary numbers coming out of uh, Sacramento uh, with regards to what the state budget is going to look like. So one of the dynamics that we often see uh, in a recession is that the private sector actually recovers uh, relatively, you know, I don't want to say quickly, but uh, it's sort of the first part of the economy to recover. And then, you know, in California, it's about 20% of jobs and of of GDP. Uh, That's the government sector. Uh, because of their budget cycle, you know, when the private sector uh, starts to contract, uh, the government takes less in tax revenue, and that usually has an implication for next year's spending, next year's budget. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to make pretty draconian cuts 
but those cuts don't materialize often for six months to a year after the actual kind of private sector crisis. So what we've seen, you know, kind of coming out of recessions in California the last several times around has been a private sector recovery that's kind of held back by job losses and by service cuts uh, to state and local government stuff. So, you know, we're talking about fire department, you know, safety, public education, et cetera. And I think the scale of the budget crisis in Sacramento is, again, you know, something we've never really seen before. I see. So we're going to have, so I think there's a couple of things that argue against this kind of, oh yeah, one or two more months of that, of what we saw in in May are going to get us right back to where we were uh, in January. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's the case. So, you know, uh, everybody likes to talk about the, you know, the, is it V-shaped? Is it L-shaped? Is it U-shaped? Is it a swoosh? <laughs> right. I think my closest thinking right now is something vaguely like a, you know, a square root sign where we kind of had a big dip. Mm-hmm. A chunk of it came back fairly rapidly. And then from there, it's going to be kind of a slow grind to make the uh, the kind of structural changes combined with this kind of drag from state and local government is going to kind of keep us, you know, stuck in the mud a little bit for, uh, um, I don't know, um, the typical timeline on this thing often is a year or two after the recession. I see. So not that we're going to be in conditions like we are now for a year or two, but that we're just going to feel like everything's starting to recover and yet it's just feels like, you know, running in the mud for a little bit. That's a great image. I'm glad you mentioned that about the reclassification. Uh, so there was some confusion after the May uh, jobs reports was released because they also revised the uh, numbers for the previous one mm-hmm. or two months, I think. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what was going on there? Well, that's just the, uh, I mean, that that's that's nothing that's uh, specific to uh, uh, to the to the crisis or anything that's that's standard operating procedure that there's usually two revisions of these numbers you know they kind of do a preliminary number then they go back and figure out what the misclassifications were and so on and issue a revised number with a little bit more data and a little bit uh, you know where they've uh, cleaned up a little bit of the mess and typically then there's a final number even after that so I think the revisions that we saw are just kind of an indication of just how how hard it is to measure right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these surveys are really old school kinds of things too, you know, or you're calling people on the phone in some cases. Yeah, I think any so- survey that's done by phone these days, just based on my own behavior, I see a random number. I don't know. I don't pick up the phone anymore. I don't pick up my mm-hmm. cell phone anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, you know, just, just the, uh, the combination of just how quickly uh, things were moving in terms of, of layoffs and all of that kind of is going to take a while for BLS to sort out. So I do expect to see some of the bigger revisions mm-hmm. that we've seen, you know, relative to what they'd look like normally. I just think since the, since the job loss, and the job recovery, again, were so historically unprecedented that the revisions that we're going to see are also going to be. Forecasting what the revisions are going to be is kind of a fool's game, honestly. Um, <laughs> I've, I've tried before and uh, covered myself <laughs> in shame before, so I'm not going not gonna to do it again here. You know, I mean, it's just measuring uh, this stuff in real time with the, uh, with the precision and reliability that the, uh, the BLS has historically been uh, uh, been known for, it takes a little bit of time and you kind of, you know, the first numbers are always a little dirty, even in the best of times. So just as background here for us about the jobs report, I would hear people complain about it and say this number is not what you think it is. It's not really a reflection of people who are out of work, that it's really a reflection of people who are still actively looking. And so it could really be understating how terrible our situation is. What do you think, and do you still think it's a useful measure, or how do you feel about this report? Well, so the first thing is I say there's a couple of different uh, reports that all get bundled together under the heading of the jobs report. Okay. So one way that we look at this, and I think this is of the uh, of the ones out there, the one that I tend to concentrate on just because I think... Um, it misses a few things, but it's also, I think, the the number I feel best about. Okay. So I'll get to the kind of the actively looking thing uh, in a minute. But what we do is we ask employers, you know, how did your payroll change from last month to this month? Okay. It's a very employer kind of 
place of work based view. Mm. Um, so that's very kind of old school. I go to the office kind of employment, lots of self-employment, lots of independent contractor stuff is going to get missed with that number. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, I know who's on my payroll. There's no psychological element to that question. Yeah. And so that is typically, it's called non-farm payroll employment is the headline number that comes out of that. And so when I refer to 20 million jobs lost, uh, it's that payroll number I'm referring to. Okay. So the second number is the one that is that the unemployment number is based on. So we also have a number there. It's called household employment. And that is basically asking people, you know, did you have a job last month? And if not, were you actively looking for one? Um, and so the unemployment number comes from that. And unemployment always is a little bit, okay, I have to use a technical term here, squishy. <laughs> I love it. In the sense that you know, the definition of unemployment is you're in the labor force, which means you're actively looking for work, uh, but you do not currently have a job. And so actively looking for work is, of course, in the eye of the beholder. And so the main unemployment number, there's actually six different flavors of unemployment that, uh, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates. The one that most of the, uh, the news media tends to look at is kind of the one right in the middle. So they all have numbers like U3 is the headline unemployment number. So some of the ones where you've got a notion that even though you might not be unemployed, uh, maybe you are working part-time when you'd rather be working full-time, right? kind of floating in and out of the labor force where you, you, know, you hit it hard for a month, send out 500 resumes, and nobody's hiring right now, and so you kind of give up. Mm-hmm. And then you come back again next month kind of thing. So this is the particular phrase is marginally attached to the labor force. Right. So there are other attempts that BLS does to kind of capture these people who are the, the main headline unemployment number might not calculate you as unemployed, but you're still kind of a, an economic casualty of, uh, of the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those obviously show higher levels of, un- I haven't yet looked at U6 recently, but those are, um, those are some ways to kind of get around that, but inherently the unemployment number, because you're kind of asking people how active was your job search, will be a little messier. Also the idea that, well, no, I didn't get laid off. I just got temporarily put on leave because of health reasons, right? That's you know a lot of the, uh, the uncertainty I was referring to before about classification is just, you know, well, your response to the survey doesn't make any sense. It's hard to match that all up. Yeah, I must say, I'm really glad that you're on the show because I remember I looked at this issue a while back because I was hearing all these complaints about the job report and I thought, gosh, it'd really be helpful to have somebody come on the show and talk about this. And so I looked at it a little bit. It was like, oh, this is actually kind of complicated since I've forgotten about it. But I'm glad you're here to explain this to us. So I think you got to you got to mix all of them together, right? You look at the you look at the household number, you look at the payroll number. You know, any of the other, you kind of, any, you don't make your stand on any one number, but you you, kind of take a little bit from each of them and you get at least a, you know, a sense of direction and all of that. And that's, that's kind of the best you hope for in real time. The one reason we all obsess about the jobs number is it's the first one that we get. Mm -hmm. It's the most timely indicator of what's going on. But at the same time, it, you know, when you look after everything has calmed down and you go back and look at the job numbers, what you end up seeing is that, you know, the economic impact of any crisis or recession tends to happen in spending and GDP first, and the labor market kind of lags that a little bit, right? First, I see a decline in my business, and I kind of try and tough it out for a little bit, and then I realize, oh, no, this is a little bit more serious. Now I have to lay out some staff. Right. Are there other measures that you look at to um, get a sense of the economy, and where do you think we stand? Um, well, I would have to add to your question that are kind of available in, you know, I mean, because in general, there's a whole host of numbers that I'll have uh, six months from now in terms of gross. Well, six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now about actual, you know, the, the, the analog to GDP in San Diego, for instance. I will eventually have that number, but it's going to be a long time before I get it. I see. I think if you want to narrow the question to, you know, what, what kind of stuff, what kind of things do I look at right now? that are, you know, somewhat timely indicators of what's going on. One of the things that I think is um, a kind of new exciting dimension for stodgy economists like me is that, you know, forever we've been reliant on this kind of official government data. 
And we're starting to see an explosion of sort of internet-based measures that are available almost in real time for things like, you know, foot traffic through downtown San Diego, Mm. what kind of Google searches are people doing? There's a lot of Google actually has a chief economist. Oh, and uh, he likes to do a lot of stuff like use Google searches to predict what unemployment will actually be. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you call uh, a lot of the statistical stuff that I do forecasting, somebody's joke is that what we're trying to actually do is now casting, right? What, mm-hmm. what, what measures can we put together that tell me what uh, the payroll employment number is going to be next month, but I can get a couple of weeks uh, lead time on it. You know, obviously, Wall Street's interested in this kind of thinking. Uh, because the jobs report is one of the things that moves the market more than anything else. So to the extent that you can accurately predict what the job mark, what the job report's going to do, you know, there, there, there's a chance to, uh, to, to make some money in that. Uh-huh. So what we're seeing is a lot of investment in these. A lot of them are individual companies, payroll companies, for instance, that actually are the ones that process payroll for companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, will often lead a, you know, issue a, well, here's our report before the official report that might give you some insight there too. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, trying to pull together a lot of that stuff, but uh, I will say being a, being a humble academic economist rather than an investment bank economist, what I find is that I have to beg, borrow, and steal. The, hey, I'm just a professor here. Can you can you let me take a look at this without paying $25,000? Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I've even seen people that are trying to aggregate uh, sentiment from Twitter Oh, Lord, that sounds scary. <laughs> and try and use that to have uh, uh, some notion of what people are tweeting about has some, some uh, predictive value for what uh, jobs and GDP are going to look like. So these are exciting times. I'm only just starting to wrap my head around some of this stuff. Yeah, very interesting. So speaking of the stock market, you know, it has been a very dramatic thing to watch. But when it recovered so much in May, there were a lot of people who were running this refrain of, see, see, the stock market is for rich people. It doesn't really reflect what's happening in the economy in general. And so, you know, there's this sense that movement of the stock market is disconnected to the overall economy. So I noticed that since that's uh, in your profile, can you help Mm -hmm. us understand about uh, markets and the economy? Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) How much time do we have left? Well, so I will say, you know, my, my thinking in this always starts with, at the end of the day, anybody in finance who's, well, I guess maybe I have to say anybody in finance who's older than a, than a certain age, uh, kind of has an anchor of fundamental value as they're thinking about this. You know, at the end of the day, what you're trading here is an ownership stake in a company and its future stream of profits and how those are going to get, you know, either paid out to you in dividends or reinvested or repurchases, you know, that there's some sort of notion that at the end of the day, you're getting, you know, that this is driven by corporate profits mm-hmm. and slice of those profits that's returned to owners, right? And mm-hmm. So obviously things are not particularly rosy when you're looking at any kind of measure of fundamental value here, just in terms of what we expect corporate profits to be. You know, I mean, the the issue is these are always sort of forward-looking measures. Yeah. So it's not necessarily what corporate profits are now. It's what I think corporate profits are going to be next year. Which is why we often describe it as a measure of confidence, right? Yeah. But I think it's also a, you know, there's a certain element of in this highly uncertain environment. Mm Mm-hmm. I get one whiff of a signal of positive, like a positive jobs report, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no surprise that there are going to be people who are, you know, I think this whole thing is kind of overblown anyway. And now here's a signal that confirms my belief. Yeah. Now trying to put my money where my mouth is, right? So this uh-huh. is a, if I can get in now and buy things uh, when they're cheap and this recovery materializes, I'm going to be in good shape. You know, and then a week or two later, you get something that's no, we're going to, we're seeing a resurgence of the virus in many of the states that have aggressively reopened. Oh my God, here we go again. Mm -hmm. Sell off here. So I think it's, you know, these sorts of situations where the underlying economic uncertainty is so high are exactly situations when we're going to see not necessarily just a depressed market, but a very volatile market, right? And those two things tend to go together. The market in general is more volatile in these downturn situations anyway. But I think that's a lot of 
if you're trying to explain the the movement of the stock market, you know, it's either the here's what I think the future path of corporate profits is, or here's what I'm willing to pay today for a dollar of profits in the future. And I think all of that movement is in that what am I willing to pay kind of that valuation multiple. That's where all the chop is. And so much of that is just in the, you know, back to that question, is this going to be a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or a, I don't know, a Z-shaped recovery? Mm -hmm. I personally am in a very kind of bunkered up position where, you know, in some sense, some of my some of my thought is just, well, I'll just dollar cost average my way through this the way I always do. Mm. But any of the more kind of discretionary portfolio part of my portfolio, I'm just too, I don't have enough confidence in my outlook about where corporate profits are going to want to make any any big splashy move right now. Maybe I'm just a little more uh, risk averse than the money driving the market right now. I see. Let's talk about what the U.S. government has been doing. So they issued a whole ton of money to bolster the economy with uh, various legislative acts that they've put out there. And I'm wondering if you can help us kind of understand the big picture here. Where did that money come from and how does it compare to other interventions that we've had by the government? I guess let's start out with the, you know, the usual playbook in any any recession is some combination of you know, what we call fiscal policy, which will be a combination of increasing uh, government spending. You know, you can think of it very simply as just GDP is about what's uh, what's getting spent in the United States in a year. And if private part of the economy is spending less, maybe we can boost that up a bit with uh, some government spending, you know, with the idea that the government buying from individual private corporations is going to make give them a little bit more money and then they pass that along to their workers and so on. Okay. Or, you know, just the tax cut, you know, like we've we've seen that's that's been the strategy more recently of just we're going to mail out checks and let consumers decide how they're going to spend them on their own. Okay. Um, we could talk for about three hours about which of the two of those is more effective or are they effective at all. But mm. like I say, it's kind of the usual uh, fiscal policy playbook. And I think that's a, a lot of what we've seen right now. You know, a lot of this honestly uh, tends to focus on whether you have a, uh, the balance of power in Washington is Democrat or Republican. Yeah. Um, Republicans tend to favor the um, give it back to the people uh, varieties of stimulus. So individual tax cuts, uh, stimulus checks and so on, whereas Democrats usually favor the more, let's build a bridge, uh, let's give money to state and local governments so that they can build infrastructure and so on, more direct government spending kind of thing. And it's just a philosophical difference. Um, but again, since I think between the, the Senate and the Republican president, um, you know, that we're, that we're seeing a little bit more of the uh, tax cut or stimulus check playbook, Mm-hmm. Where does the money come from that? Well, we're borrowing it, right? This is the federal government is in this unique position of we do not need to balance our checkbook every month. Uh, the amount we spend versus what we take in in tax revenue, the difference is borrowing. But one of the things that's just sort of a staggering since you know the last 30 years, I'm continually surprised by is that the the U.S. Uh, private population and indeed the rest of the world seems to have an unlimited appetite for U.S. Treasury debt. Yeah, right. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that. Uh-huh. So this is uh, this is deficit spending, but it's nothing new. This is we do that. You know, it's kind of the uh, what the playbook is uh, from from Congress's perspective on the uh, during a during a recession. Now, the other piece of the puzzle, of course, is what we call monetary policy. That's the uh, that's the Federal Reserve. You know, the combination of uh, lower interest rates, you know, again, we're seeing all of the um, the same kind of unconventional playbook where this isn't just buying and selling uh, three month treasury uh, bills to uh, or uh, to, to, to manage certain lower interest rates. But, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of money going into a lot of different places here. But this is essentially just the, um, you know, the Federal Reserve at some level can buy as much as it wants because they print the money. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a very kind of old school way to talk about it, given how much of this is just uh, numbers in a spreadsheet representing deposits at the Federal Reserve. You know, it's not like we're literally printing hundred dollar bills all the time. But the idea that, you know, these are just pieces of paper that are associated with economic activity 
You know, we've uh, we we had a big worry in some corners of uh, the policy world during the Great Recession, given all of the unconventional stuff uh, that the Fed was doing. That we were going to see the usual thing that we tell freshmen in their first introduction to uh, to monetary economics, which is that. Uh, you know, again, money is just pieces of paper. And if you all of a sudden double how many pieces of paper there are, but there's still the same amount of stuff to buy, all you're going to do is double the price of everything, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of big uh, monetary expansion was going to lead to inflation and we didn't see it. Yeah. Right. And I think we're starting to see the same, you know, on the monetary side, we're seeing the same uh, playbook again, just but we were still in fairly uh, low interest rates by historical standards, even you know, back when we were talking in January before. Sure. Yeah, sure. Before any of this hit the fan. And there's only so much you can cut from where we were before. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think monetary policy is going to be as stimulative as it has been historically, just because we were starting from fairly low interest rates already. Uh-huh. So again, the Fed's going back to the playbook of just, we're going to, we're going to expand the money supply and go out and buy assets. So, you know, again, we can go in either direction from that, the fiscal or the monetary. The one thing that, you know, we try very hard in the United States not to do because we've seen other countries do it. And this is where the wheels come off the wagon a little bit is that one of the people that can buy all this government debt that the, that the, uh, that the treasury is issuing to finance all this deficit spending is the Fed. Right. Right. So we get into a cycle where the Fed prints up some money and then uses that money to buy up the treasury debt. Mm-hmm. This, is the, uh, this is the thing we, we talk about in, um, in historical examples of hyperinflation, which is just using, using your power to print money to, 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 to pay bills instead. Now, I don't think we're anywhere, you know, nothing, nothing that I see right now is, um, uh, is, is indicative of that. And I think what we saw in the wake of the Great Recession suggests that I'm not particularly concerned about that happening in the U.S. over the next 10 years or so. At the same time, it's something to keep an eye on, right? We were one of the things that I think a lot of people are surprised to hear is that we have been deficit spending like crazy even before the crisis. The last two years or so, we usually think that Republican administrations don't do that. But you look at the numbers, and again, you know what we're seeing is uh, spending going up, cutting taxes at the same time, just relying on people to uh, to, to to buy our debt. And so, when you're deficit spending. Uh, like that in the good times, and then something like this happens, you go from a uh, moderate level of deficit spending to an insane level of deficit. Oh, I see. You mean even fairly recently. Yeah, 2018, 2019. These were both uh, near the high end of what we'd seen with uh, with deficit spending in the last 70, 80 years. I see. Yeah, no, I, I didn't appreciate that either. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? You'll often hear people kind of wringing their hands and saying, this is it. You know, this is the end of the road. We can't uh, issue any more debt. This just can't go on. Or, you know, on the monetary side, again, you know, this tool just is going to run out of a road here. It's just going to reach the end. And so far, it just doesn't seem to have. I think it's quite frustrating for for some uh, people. Do you have any comments about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm old enough that I remember being worried that Japan was underwriting U.S. deficit spending in the 80s, and that if they decided they weren't going to do that anymore, that we were going to have, you know, basically this, this foreign money allows us to pull off the trick of not saving a lot of money, so not putting a lot of money into our financial system, and yet the firm's that need that access to capital to uh, to expand operations and so on, have all the money they need, right? So if we didn't have access to that foreign money, what we would end up seeing is that we need to, you know, there'd be a big mismatch between what we're saving domestically and what firms are wanting to do in this kind of capital spending domestically. And the thing that would match that would be a huge spike in interest rates that would cause people to stop consuming and save. And it would also dial back firm investment spending and right this is the this is the story that you hear in Greece mm-hmm. you know Mexico in the in, in in 1994 where the access to foreign money just goes away and you kind of have a, a a real deep financial crisis because of that mm-hmm. part of me has been worried about that in America since the late 80s <laughs> okay yep right and you know it's just a funny feeling of I, I fret about it 
And then in the next decade, it expands to a scale I couldn't have possibly imagined. <laughs> right. So I heard about it more. And then in the next day, de- you know, it's just like I said, the, um, the world's appetite for U.S. Treasury debt as the safest asset, you know, the safe haven where I can park my money. Mm-hmm. Again, just seems limitless mm. until it's not. Yeah. So there I go fretting about it again, and I'm going to laugh about it in the next decade when I was, you know, all the things I was worried about in 2020. But that's sort of the weird codependent relationship that we've established with, uh, you know, with China, with uh, the petroleum exporters in the Middle East, you know, just sort of this, we're going to buy lots of your stuff. So you're going to have a large surplus of dollars and you need to do something with them. So what are you going to do? You're going to plow them back into our financial market. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to watch. I think uh, when you're at a, an older age and have watched this over the decades, it really is interesting to see how things play out. And, and like I say, at some point you just sort of throw up your hands, or at least I do. It's like, well, okay, I, apparently I know nothing. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the, the, the interesting and frustrating things about economics is some people want to pretend it's physics, that there's some underlying, you know, laws of motion about how, how the economy works and it's people, mm. right? So, I mean, you kind of have a wily coyote can keep running as long as he doesn't look down defying the laws of gravity. Kind of, you know, we see this sure. kind of thing happen over and over and over again and how that can happen is both, you know, frustrating in the, well, all of my theoretical education and understanding says it should work this way, and yet it's not. Mm-hmm. So on one level, that's frustrating, but at another level, that makes is what makes it fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what is it I'm missing? What's, what's, what's the missing piece here? And I think that's what, uh, that was, that's what keeps you coming back for more, at least for me. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about the future. Um, and, I know this is a really tough question, but do you have any sense? I know you talked about maybe slogging through the mud here for a few years as far as economic growth goes. Anything else that you that you're kind of thinking, yeah, my my money would be on this? Well, I do think that um, you know, I'm really uh, in the in the new normal camp rather than a back to normal camp. Uh-huh. Um, I think that you know there's just a lot of, and this is kind of the way of things that a lot of structural change in the economy historically kind of centers around recessions. You know, this is the this is the time when you see the most change in market share. You see the most dynamics in terms of, you know, existing firms that were kind of limping along, going out of business and so on. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of like, for instance, one of the things, you know, that a lot of people have been thinking about is, you know, is retail debt brick and mortar retail. Are we just going to buy everything online now? Yeah. Do malls still make sense in this day and age? And I think, you know, this kind of emphasis on less uh, face-to-face transactions as as we can um, is going to reshape that. I don't think we're going to buy any less than we have before, but just how we do it is going to be different. Even a brick and mortar store may still be brick and mortar. I still think there's a niche for that, but I think it's going to be much more the drive up and have them put it in your trunk kind of thing that my wife's been doing lately. Mm-hmm. You know, I think going out to a restaurant's not going to feel the same as it used to be for a while. I mean, in the long run, we will either, you know, some, I'm confident that there will be some combination of a medical breakthrough that will mitigate the impact of this particular virus combined with herd immunity and whatnot. So, you know, I mean, in the long run, I think we're not all going to be quite as, uh, hiding in the bunker as, uh, as we have been. But I think at the same time, you know, things are just, things are going to be a little different. And because of that, you know, it's sort of, it's a scary time, but it's an exciting time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I, 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 I talk a lot to the, uh, uh, to the crew here in, in San Diego that thinks about uh, should we build more light rail or should we expand freeways, you know, things about kind of traffic and the, uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, kind of climate plan that San Diego has and all of that. And, you know, one of the total surprises that was never on anybody's radar in this discussion until now was having people work from home keeps them off the road. Oh, yeah. You know, we're always talking about these multi-million dollar plans to try to, you know, have light rail or whatnot when just having everybody work from home for two days a week 
uh, you know, two out of five uh, will get you a 40% reduction in car related emissions with just a behavior change. Right. Crazy. Uh, right. That was never, you know, all of our, all of our old school, we can't, we can't meet online until we had to. Right. Uh-huh. There's some silver linings, I guess, or at least some innovations that, uh, that, that the recession tends to engender as well that I'm, that I'm hoping to see, you know, for the, for the, for the sectors where it works, uh, having people be a little bit more flexible and work from home has the potential to relieve pressure on uh, low supply housing markets, relieve pressure on traffic, relieve pressure on emissions. So, you know, that's, that's, I think, thinking optimistically and thinking about one of the, uh, you know, what's the, what's the new normal going to look like? These are some of the, some of the things I'm uh, thinking about. Yeah. I, the word innovation keeps coming to mind for me. It just seems like when there's this much chaos, when things that you thought couldn't move now move in a big way, it's like, well, I think there's room for, you know, for different things to happen in there. Yeah. Yeah. It it is exciting. Kind of scary, but it is exciting. (laughs) I was reading in The Economist some of the predictions for what GDP would be for various countries, and I was really struck by how small some of the movements, you know, to my uneducated eye, seem just a few points. And yet, you know, the the verbiage around those predictions was, you know, oh, my God, you know, I've never seen unprecedented, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Can you help me understand why such small movements in GDP seem to be so significant? Well, so I, I would think of this, uh, I'm most familiar with the U.S. numbers in this regard, so that's where I'm going to kind of anchor myself, but I mm-hmm. think it's the same, the, 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 the same sort of story at an, at an international level, that, um, you know, a particularly severe recession in the United States would be maybe a 3% decline in GDP over the, you know, from, from where things peaked out at the beginning to where things bottomed out uh, at the end. Three percent doesn't sound like a big deal, but you know yeah. those are the kind of things where you're seeing the you know unemployment go up uh, four, five, six percent over uh, you know. So I'm thinking this is not you know the problem is is that we haven't had a garden variety recession in, in 20 years. So mm. um, you know so memories are a little bit short on this that everybody thinks that the uh, you know that the next recession is a replay of the last one. You know that's a that's right. A uh, that's a common sort of thinking. And then, of course, this one is nothing like the last one. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, a 3% GDP, a 3%, uh, a, a recession that is a 3% decline in GDP in the United States is actually uh, something that we're going to remember as being one of the bad ones. Mm-hmm. Why, why does something that sounds like such a small number lead to, I think it's just that so much of this is about, you know, ripple effects, chain reactions, multipliers, you know, there's lots of different words people uh, mm-hmm. to describe this. You know, the real toll of a recession to me, you know, there's, there's, been, a, there's been a lot of study of this. Well, I mean, there's a huge literature on this, but it's become, I think, in the last 15 years or so, it's been something that people have been focusing on again, is that, you know, unemployment 30 years ago used to be just sort of this kind of inconvenient hiccup where you would get laid off from the factory, but then the factory would reopen when things are good again, and you go back to exactly the same job you had before. Oh, you've seen the last few times is that it's more the structural change I was referring to before, where you lose your job. And in fact, that job vanishes, doesn't make any sense to do in the United States anymore. Yeah. So the experience of unemployment, I I think in the last 20 years or so, it's a more difficult transition. It lasts longer, it's more severe, and it's more associated with this kind of, I'm not going to be doing the same job I had before. Right. You know, we, we tend to look at it as just oh, a job's a job, a person's, you know, it's very, it's very easy to get disconnected from this. But, you know, our job and our whole sense of identity are very closely tied together. So when you've been working for 20 years in a job that's one of these ones that, you know, just is going to not be here in America anymore and you have to go back to school and learn how to do something different, hustle to find a new job, you know, there, there's a huge a psychological, emotional toll on this. You know, we see um, in these big spurts of unemployment, uh, all sorts of addiction and suicide sorts of uh, mm. numbers go up as well. So this is a, um, it's easy to uh, focus on what's most easily measured. <clears throat> and so we can think about it in kind of dollars and cents terms here. But 
yeah, just even a little one, two, three percent hiccup in GDP has so many, you know, and, and again, thinking about that is just we all spend uh, just a little bit less than we were before. Mm-hmm. But again, it's such an interconnected web that the uh, the ripple effects from that um, have pretty serious uh, consequences. Now, of course, those consequences are not evenly distributed across our society. And I think that's another thing that's been really, you know, the last 20 years or so has seen seen that divide growing that a lot of the, uh, the income growth has been concentrated at the top of the top of the top. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of the, uh, the people who are going to be most affected by uh, an increase in unemployment uh, are also, you know, the people who were struggling when the economy was good. So I think this is another situation where unemployment before, you know, the system of unemployment insurance and all is sort of a brief tide you over till you go back to work kind of thing. Uh, that made sense in 1970. We may need to rethink a, uh, a kind of more broader support for, okay, well, you used to be, uh, you know, employed in this kind of garment manufacturing, and we just don't do garment manufacturing in the U.S. anymore like we used to. So we got to get you th- doing something else now. Mm-hmm. How do we help that transition? Sorry, I'm all over the map on that one. But Oh, no, no, it's really fascinating. So speaking of jobs, I want to use uh, the rest of our time, if you're up for this, to talk about being an economist. I just think it's a really uh, interesting field. And when I heard you talk, one of the things I really enjoyed about your presentation of the numbers was you kind of left politics out of it. And I've been to a lot of talks by economists since I think it's an interesting topic. And so I'm always struck by this. And maybe, you know, I'm the daughter and sister of physicists. And so Mm -hmm. maybe my uh, problem does come from the idea that I think it's physics. I find it so strange that the economists can really be pitted against each other and that there's so much emotion and really politics a lot of times in it. Can you help me understand why economists disagree so vehemently? Well, I think number one is there's, there's a lot of different shades of economist, if you will, right? Mm. There's sort of the more academic person like me. There are private sector. I'm just trying to help my company make a little bit more money. And then there's kind of the people that are at the intersection of the, the politics and the economics, mm-hmm. um, where you know you are often paid to advocate for a specific kind of policy or position sort of thing there. And I think the... Um, you know, I already sort of hit on this a little bit that what we're all trying to do is observe these patterns of behavior and statistics that we see with why is unemployment doing what it's doing? Why, uh, why are foreigners increasingly willing to buy U.S. debt when everything, you know, when, when we think they should kind of reach a, uh, a satiation point? Mm-hmm. The issue is that in many cases, if you think of economics as sort of a you know, a lot of us would hope that it's a science. Right. I think I've been in it long enough to say that we ideally would like to be a science, but it is very difficult given the nature of what we study. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ideally in sort of a scientific setting, what you'd like to do is see, you know, a particular pattern that you're trying to describe, and you maybe have a couple of different theories about why it looks the way it does. And then you start to do the hard work of, you know, some people are lucky enough to be able to do experiments where you can kind of target a manipulation that will say, oh, well, this supports this theory and kind of discredits this other one. Okay. So the problem with economics is we can't very well run experiments, right? We can't mm-hmm. sort of say, hey, I've got an idea. How about we don't pay unemployment insurance in <laughs> the Western half of the United States, but we do in the Eastern half. Let's see what happens. Uh-huh. Right? That would be the kind of experiment that would settle, well, or at least would, would be, a, be a step in the right direction to settle some of the debates we have. But really all we can do is kind of observe what happened and talk about it. So what it ends up doing is you often will have two, two. You will often have many kind of theories that are designed to explain the same pattern of behavior that you see. So for instance, it's going to sound silly when I say it, but there is actually a huge amount of disagreement uh, among economists that has been raging for... 70 years about what causes a recession. Uh-huh. You would think that would be something we figured out by now, but there's a school of thought sort of an older school of thought. And I, and I think this is kind of the way that, you know, we, we teach it to most students. And so it's kind of the, uh, uh, the way a lot of people out there that, you know, it's a decline in spending. 
And this, this, this sort of leads to these, uh, this, these cascading effects that I talked about. There's a more recent school of thought that dominates a lot of academics these days. It just says that it's a uh, so-called negative technology shock. Now, what that means is, you know, technology is a very broad term in economics for how we do what we do. Right, basically take the same inputs and get more output out of it. That's a that's an improvement in technology in our in our parlance. Uh huh. So somehow a recession in this view is that we woke up this morning dumber than we were yesterday, and we can take the same inputs that we had before, and we can't seem to make as much output with them. Hmm. You know, so these are largely random, unpredictable shocks, but the economy responds to them, and that's what a recession is. The problem is, is that those are depending on which worldview you choose to adapt, you can interpret all of the data through that lens and have a kind of coherent explanation for why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to say it's a little bit of uh, kind of superstition and religion, but it is a little bit, right? It's the, this is the, you know, there are competing worldviews within economics mm-hmm. that you adopt. And so, you know, I try very hard to have the, you know, here's the data, I guess this is because I was sort of, I, I came to economics from science as well. So oh. I think I kind of have this, this idea that this is the data. Here are the explanations that are plausible. Here's the one I find most convincing. Mm-hmm. And that's how I try to talk to normal people. Okay. Um, because I think the, um, you know, we do people a disservice when we say that this is absolute, you know, everybody wants certainty from us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very easy so some people do it just because you kind of get, you know, you, you kind of have your, your clientele drag you into, but I want you to be certain about this. Tell me. Mm-hmm. And it's just easy to kind of fall into that. And other times it's just, you know, again, if you're attached to, uh, you're one of the economists that works for uh, in DC for a particular, uh, you know, cabinet agency or even for the president, you better believe that in some cases you're going to be getting pushed to here's the result I want. You find the economics that supports it. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. So I think there's a, there's, there's a credibility crisis that, uh, that, that, that economics has faced, I think both in the great recession and, and now today a little bit based on the fact that there's just so much, there's so many people out there that have economists attached to their name who don't do it the way I do it, that say things that I think that are just absolute crazy town. There's no support for this in the data. Yes, there is a theoretical argument that that might happen, but but I don't think, you know, I mean, we can come up with seven different theories to explain the same set of facts. It doesn't mean they're all true. And so I think that's just the the nature of where economics is in the public discourse is you have a group of us that are aspiring to approach it like science, and you have a group of us that are using it as, I don't know, kind of the, the expert credibility is currency in a political debate. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to be the expert for hire that supports this particular view. Yeah. Wow. And there's those guys out there too. Yeah. That's a really very insightful explanation. And so this is my last question because I know okay. I have to let you go. Um, do you have any advice for people about becoming an economist and, you know, what drew you to the field or, or what mm-hmm. would you say to people who are kind of toying with the idea of becoming an economist? Well, yeah, I think based on what I said before, there's a lot of different directions that you can, uh, that you can go to be kind of in this space. I spent a lot of time in school. I learned a lot of hardcore math, you know, that the, that the route to becoming a PhD economist is uh, a little bit rough. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, if you're the kind of person that has that sort of scientific disposition to, I want to cut through the, uh, you know, I really want to understand why this is the way it is. This is just something that I'm inherently interested in and excited about, and I want to know more about it. You know, that's the kind of curiosity that can drive you to go through the whole, I'm going to get an undergraduate degree, six more years in grad school, and kind of do that whole vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, based a little bit on what I was saying before, I think a lot of people who are economists don't do that. They have, you know, I know a lot of MBA economists mm-hmm. that just kind of end up in this, I have an interest in this field and I kind of, um, you know, in particular, I think if you watch the, uh, you know, the business news networks, mm-hmm. they have kind of people that you see on there all the time. They're economists, but they don't, you know, in many cases aren't PhD economists. These are just people 
that kind of just work in the space. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're interested in this because of its intersection with a particular company with a particular line of business, and you just kind of roll around in it, and you figure out. You know, a lot of the people that I know that are most plugged into the jobs report and some of the questions you've been asking me actually are not academic economists. They're hmm. the yeah, I just the forecasting the job report is what I get paid to do. Uh-huh. And you know, I think there's um if one thing I think so I, I, I think just an interest in these questions, right? The kind of person who can sit through an entire hour of listening to me talk about this and come up with more, maybe uh-huh. you should be an economist. <laughs> okay. um, but there's uh it doesn't necessarily have to be the you know, that, that, that path of going to graduate school and being a professor and all that. There's lots of different places. You know, there's a lot, I mean, I know a lot of um, sort of master's level economists that work in public agencies as well. So if you kind of have the public policy economics bent, you know, a lot of my students end up doing that where they'll go work for, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve or the FDIC or some of the Washington uh, Commerce Department, et cetera, you know, in kind of a job that t- touches economics without needing to be a full on gone beyond any hope or redemption nerd like me. (laughs) Well, that's great. Thank you so much. And before I let you go, I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to share with the listeners, like how they can follow your work or resources that you'd refer them to, or if there are things that you wish that they wouldn't read or really anything you'd like them to know. Um, well, in terms of my particular work, we're actually at a pretty exciting time at, uh, at the University of San Diego. And that um, I think the combination of uh, a new dean who is interested in kind of the, uh, the getting, getting people out of the ivory tower and out uh, contributing to the, uh, the discourse of the day combined with the interest uh, in what I do because of the crisis, oh. um, we're actually starting a new um, a new center at the at the business school at USD that's devoted specifically to this kind of uh, San Diego economics. Oh, I see. Um, so we're still, like I said, it's still mostly on paper um, at this point. But I think if you uh, you know look for me on uh, on LinkedIn, follow the uh, the the USD Business School. A lot of the content that I'm pushing out kind of gets out through those channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of what not to read, um, <laughs> I don't know. I would say I have, a, I have a very famous proverb that I've passed along to my daughter, and I think she's finally gotten old enough now or she understands it, which is, uh, follow those who seek the truth and flee those who have found it. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's lots of people out there who speak very, very confidently about what this crisis is, uh, what the way out is going to be and all of that. And I would say, just, just make sure that you're, um, not falling into the trap of, I find this person entertaining, so I'm going to listen to them. Mm. You know, listen to several different people who are saying different things and you kind of average them all together to find your opinion. I think that's the way you got to do economics. Mm. Um, you know, I hope I'm one voice uh, of several there, but when you put them all together, you'll find, oh, everybody does seem to agree on this. Mm-hmm. And then there's wild disagreement on this. Uh-huh. Right? Well, that means you got to sort of mark down your okay, um, well, I think this is my right answer, but I actually don't have a high degree of confidence about this. I'm going to keep an eye on it. I'm going to look for more data. I'm going to, you know, that's the way you got to approach this here because there is, you know, I think this is a funny thing. The more you study economics, it's got a real sort of, you know, kind of bell curve to it where you're moving up the top and you're like a senior undergraduate and you're like, I know everything about the way the economy works. And then you keep studying, you keep studying, you keep studying, and you move down the back half of the curve where you realize, well, all of that stuff was actually just the tip of a very, very deep and complicated iceberg. And maybe it's a little more complicated than that uh, supply and demand story about minimum wage, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, so the more you keep studying, the more nuance you realize is out there. And so I think if you're the kind of person that's just a, uh, you know, kind of a consumer of economics so that you can do what you're really out to do, more than anything else, it's just make sure you're getting a diversity of, uh, of viewpoints before you form your well, that's that's really great. So, Ryan, thank you so much for the work that you do and for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.